Crow Talk. Crow Talk. Crow Talk. Film Squawk. Hereditary. Written and directed by Ari Aster. 2018. As I'm sure you're aware by now, I'm Rochelle. I am Stacy. I am Cassidy. Hello. 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 As a mother of two struggles to grieve the death of a loved one, dark secrets emerge that suggest her family may be at the center of a disturbing destiny. What's the scariest movie you've seen? In my whole life? In your whole life. It, it depends. It changes on how old I am. Mm, you that's know? a good point. That is a good point. But I think the film responsible for my fascination with horror is probably Jaws that I saw when I was Ooh. way too young mm-hmm. and living in California, you know, around the ocean. Doo-doo. So scary in broad Doo-doo. daylight. Yeah, it was voted like the scariest movie out of all of the horror films yeah. of all time. That and well, Terminator 2 actually is quite horrific. That is probably my foundational scary film. Cassidy? Okay, well, I have two, but now I have three because of what Stacy said. First one that just scared the shit out of me was Scream, mm-hmm. the original. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> Terrifying. <laughs> Um, I was in like sixth grade and then the ring still makes me scared when I watch it. Like it scares me, Mm -hmm. um, because they only show scary stuff like twice and the rest of the time you're just, I don't know. I was terrified by that one and Texas Chainsaw Massacre because that's just like the original because it's just so believable and terrifying Mm -hmm. cold sweats. How about you, Rochelle? My go-to scary movie answer has been since probably 2006 idiocracy but that's not what we're talking about here (laughs) (laughs) my real scariest movie i think is probably Candyman. uh we used to watch Mm. it hearkening back when i was in high school and it just i think we still we watched it on vhs tape Someone owned it, and it just was one of those movies that we put it on. It did not matter how many times I watched it. It scared the bejesus out of me every single time. <laughs> I don't think I've seen Candyman. Ooh, it's bloody. Oh, it's like a slasher. I don't think I've seen it either. Is it like a slasher film? Um, kind of. It's not like what we would consider a slasher film today. But, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just amazing (laughs) (laughs) yeah i would prefer to never see texas chainsaw massacre ever again no like i never want to see it again ever again but the ring i watch and the last time i watched it was with a group of adults and we had to high five each other throughout the film because we were like still scared as a group (laughs) of adults sitting together with the lights on so you high fived an encouragement just to like get the jitters out and like helps (laughs) anxiety response a little bit yeah yeah I think The Exorcist is the first movie that got me really into paranormal uh, horror, that genre of film, Mm -hmm. because that was the first movie that I watched where I really felt wrong (laughs) after watching it. I felt Mm -hmm. like not good. Yeah. And I had waves of that with this film that we're about to talk about today. So give me a couple reasons why viewers, moviegoers should see Hereditary. My yay is that it's a beautifully crafted film. The craft of the film is beautiful. A reason to see this film is that it's evil. My reason, capital R, 
reason to see this film is Toni Collette's performance. Oh, she's so good. I knew that was going to be your yay. Ooh. So what about the things that would keep us from either reviewing or recommending it? My nay is the same as my yay. <laughs> it's pure evil. Do you like <laughs> happy movies that don't scare you? Don't watch this one. The off-scene reaction shot uh, in this film for me gets tedious. So Hereditary has been compared to quite a few films. Uh, more recent films, The Witch, and uh, It Follows, as well as late 60s or 70s style slow build horror films like Polanski's Rosemary's Baby. Did you focus on that at all during your viewing? Did that come up? Immediately it came up for me, Rosemary's Baby. It felt like an homage at times to Rosemary's Baby. Um, very much so connected with um, the 60s, 70s aesthetic quality of horror. Yeah, for me, while I was watching it, again, like the craft of the film was great. So I loved the pacing pretty much the whole time. But um, afterwards, when I started reading about it, I fully agree that it's like The Shining or an older horror film in the, yeah, in just like the slow build of anxiety. Yeah, it reminded me of maybe how audiences responded to The Exorcist when it came out. Mm -hmm. um, it was interesting to experience it with an audience. This is also the first film we haven't seen all together. We all saw it separately. Correct. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about that, how that impacts our reactions, you know, because when I'm sitting right. with you two, I'm like aware of how you're reacting to the film. Definitely. Um, so that was missing, which was really interesting. And I'm excited to explore that if it's possible even. Yeah, I wonder how we parse that out. I mean, we all saw it with our partners. Right. Yeah. I mean, the audience at the show that I saw was really reactive. Interesting. And we were in a screening with four other people. <gasps> Whoa. I'm so jealous. Oh I know a lot gosh, of people scary. would be jealous. so jealous. There no was... crazy click clocks for us in our Yeah, viewing. there were like random click clocks and like laughter at certain points. And people like outright said stuff i mean i was fine with it stacy shaking her head no how dare you <laughs> so pissed members. off like it was all high schoolers in your viewing oh uh, they were all it was like oh, clusters of high schoolers and in the beginning they were okay and they behaved and then towards the end when the anxiety really ramped up and it got really scary um it was just laughter running commentary click clicks well and it gets um, quite abstract and so yeah. i would imagine that since it's not a linear storyline, that for a younger brain, that maybe is there for fun and scares, it's mm -hmm. not going to hold the same attention. Even reviews I read, though, said that it like came across as like dark humor at certain points, which I could agree with in moments, though in this moment, I couldn't tell you what part of the film that was, other than at the end, that's when the audience was like reacting. Yeah, I was getting frustrated in the film, and I kept like glaring you know doing the like <laughs> stink eye like really in face. the dark and then it was like just pretend they're not there it's gonna be fine and I was like, okay. so I like rolled my eyes and did a quick seance and got back in um but my husband felt that it was a response to fear that they were they were laughing and clicking to relieve the tension of the film and when I think about it that way I'm like well then this film was freaking scary as hell because yeah. they couldn't shut up the scariest part where the audience reacted the most was when Tony Collette was like <gasps> on the wall in the corner, like crawling around on the walls and 
side so, stroke through the air. That and also when was it Tony Collette too that like raised up into the well, yeah, because then she saws her head off. Oh my god! I had to look away a little bit there. I, I like, like kind of forgot violence. about that for a second, and it just like <laughs> was really jarring to have you say that. <laughs> well, yeah. So their so their response, oh. the high schoolers' response in your viewing, Stacy, sounds a lot like the high fives that mm-hmm. you exchanged yeah, with your and comrades. Like, the audience that I was with was essentially exchanging verbal high fives in the theater too. And I mean, yeah, I was like giggling too because it's so uncomfortable, but it's kind of fun. It's like an amusement park ride almost, you know, you're like, I can't control this. Oh my God. I do appreciate the difference. Yeah. I didn't even have one ripple in my, in my viewing, not even, it was like viewing at home, but in a really huge screen. That's amazing. It was lovely. I'm so jealous. And I needed that for the the difficulty I had with this viewing. So that, yeah, I am excited that it was so different. But yeah, I don't know if we could ever parse it out. I know. How to hold the different viewings. I just wonder, yeah, if we could turn back time and if we'd all seen it together, what, how that would have impacted how we feel about it. It probably would have impacted me because I'm so like absorbing everyone's feelings all the time. So it's probably me that would have been different. I most. knew you would love it. Do you love it? Did you love it? No. Oh, okay. I did, did not. not love it. Okay. I knew Stacy would. I, knew I said sh- it to Justin. I was like, Stacey's yeah. going to love this. <laughs> I knew that I would love it, that you, Cassidy, would be like neutral and that you wouldn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> Something I read that really helped me uh, bridge the gaps in my uh, viewing, my understanding of what I had just seen, not only was you know time helpful, but I read quite a few articles just because so much out there is super positive and I wanted to absorb a little bit of how people were describing that positive uh, feeling. And the Hollywood Reporter, an article from the Hollywood Reporter, described uh, Hereditary as batshit crazy collision of the supernatural and the classically mythological. And the classically mythological piece of that quote really helped me uh, because I couldn't hold the the demonic supernatural piece alone. It didn't feel um, stretched enough or full enough. It was, or perhaps it was too stretched and too full that it didn't fit easily into that category for me. Something else was happening. And so I was, I was very thankful and it helped tone down my, um, confusion. Mm -hmm. I felt confused during it a little bit. Like it hits you so hard with all the demonic shit at the end, like the play with thinking it's all, you know her own psyche or whatever that's confusing her it's her own mind and then realizing like nope it's just the devil like I have a hard time with those kind of endings like in the theater Justin and I were my husband and I were like seriously that was it okay fine fine devil worship fine (laughs) but then after reading about it I appreciate it more and I again like the film as a vehicle for horror was amazing like I don't know if there were points throughout the whole film that were freaky and great performances and scary, but yeah, the ending I had kind of a hard time with too. I always do. And like, this was my same issue with Tully. It like wrapped up too quickly for me. What about your pure enjoyment, Stace? (laughs) Um, I really liked the ending. It didn't wrap up too quickly for me. Um, And I, I don't know. I didn't go through the whole film having it figured out, but there was this strangeness that was pervasive throughout the film with, uh, it started with 
one of the cult members that you find out at the end staring at the little girl at the funeral. And he's got this crazy smile. And then there's a woman from across the street and she's waving. And I think they actually reversed the footage because the way she's moving is kind of strange. And so all of these things started building and creating this atmosphere that made me feel weird. Like I felt like I was aware of my own exorcism or possession. Like I'd woken up in the middle of heart surgery, but I couldn't tell the doctor that I was awake. That was the feeling that it gave me throughout mm. the whole film. And then in the ending reminded me of The Witch, where it was very straight. There was no, could it be all in her head? Is this demonic possession? No. <laughs> right. This is about bringing payment. I believe that's the demon name. Payment into a, the host. Just like the witch at the end when she's rising up and is in hysterics, like in euphoria. I, ha I had that same um, fear meets euphoria moment, which is so um, confusing and unnerving and makes me feel wrong because I'm there's some level of me that is getting positive stimulation from what I'm seeing on the screen, but everything around it is bad. So it captured this je ne sais quoi that I love about horror in that it made me feel wrong. <laughs> and then the evil ended up being the winner. You know, they fought and fought and fought, but the evil won. <laughs> so it's kind of simplistic, I guess, in a way. Um, but I really like that. It's such a throwback, too to that era of horror that's really scary. I mean, and people are saying it's a different genre of horror now. He, like, created a new genre of horror. And I think it's because of that psychological play. So that's what you're expecting as an audience member, is that it's all in your mind. And then it's like, nope, it's an old trope instead. And the world that they're inhabiting itself, the common day world, is also wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no doctors. There are mm -hmm. no detectives. There are no specialists or help of any kind. No man of God shows up mm -hmm. like in so many past um, horror films. They're alone. And the idea that no one is having to like pay for anything or then receive assistance in any way from from anyone who might have more information or some leeway or say so in this world. It's just people sitting around and talking. And that's the most help that anyone can have. And it's wrong. It doesn't feel right. It's confusing. Uh, but it's not overwhelmingly confusing. You just realize that it, that reality contributes to the wrongness, that wrong feeling overall. I read that uh, Ari Aster was inspired by some sort of trauma that happened in his family and he like won't talk about what it was but that eventually he said when bad things happen all in a row you end up feeling cursed and that was what he would like talk about they felt cursed and so that's what inspired him uh, for this film was feeling like a family was cursed so I wonder if part of the reason that there aren't any like doctors or policemen or any people to help is because maybe when you're in that sort of situation you don't even feel like anybody can help you you know because it's all just so out of your control I do feel that was almost a device too of the film because I felt they were very isolated and it felt like even the outside world when they'd go into town was not real like nothing was real everything felt like a facade 
And whether that was intentional or not, it worked for me in creating this feeling of isolation for this family and isolation and hopelessness. Like there was no one there. This is all preordained and everyone is just playing the roles that they were destined to play. Yeah, another quote from another article I I read from The Verge. Uh, It says, based on themes regarding family, specifically nuclear family, um, they're so deeply immersed in unnatural that they don't even notice it anymore. Mm -hmm. And that resonated well with me. What's so interesting as we focus on this four-person nuclear family now that the grandmother is gone, you learn more about uh, Tony Collette's childhood, the actor playing the character Annie, and you realize that her father and her brother met tragic ends, and this obviously impacted her mother, but beyond that, Annie, what was it? She was sleepwalking, right? and when she woke up, her two children and herself were covered in paint thinner, and she had a lit match, mm-hmm. and So from that, you learn a little bit more about potentially her not wanting children, wanting to not have her first child. Um, And it becomes a pretty huge shadow that's cast over all of them. Um, Not so much the younger daughter, Charlie, played by Millie Shapiro, but definitely for Peter, the the son, played by Alex Wolfe. And what's so interesting about, about that, I think, is that... Peter, his biological connection to the father, Steve, played by Gabriel Byrne, is questionable at best. Like, they don't look at all alike. We know that Annie gave birth to Peter, but it's Steve who has the connection that he keeps pressing. He, you know, goes in, says he loves him. Peter doesn't respond. Later, he tells his father that he loves him, but it's it's Steve who's creating like this protective space around around his son. So, if we're dealing with this idea of, of a nuclear family, we're also playing with ideas of what nuclear looks like, and I really appreciated that. Mm-hmm. I read an article that talked about how or speculated that Tony Collette's character knew that her kids were cursed the entire time. And so that's why she had the lit match. That for me made the entire narrative stronger after reading that, because she said at one point when she had the lit match that she was trying to save her son. And she also said that she didn't want to have her son and said something to the effect of like her mother made her have him yeah, like forced her into it. And so in hindsight, I really want to see the film again because I think it'll make so much more sense and I'll pick up on a lot more clues because even some of the cult members that were like at the funeral, like you had mentioned, Stacey, uh, when they show up at the very end, it was like, who, who are these people? It was like a bit confusing. So I'm excited to go back and watch it again. Um, and especially, yeah, like having a little bit of knowledge of what's to come. And I think Tony Collette's character did too. I think I agree with that review that she must have known. And that's why she wanted to maybe kill her kids and told her son that she didn't want him. Um, Even that slip of the tongue during the fight when she says, all I get back is that fucking face on your face. She slaps her mouth, covers her mouth. I love that part. That was amazing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And just as like a look at family dealing with like severe grief. Mm hmm. 
it's amazing because yeah again that's where that psychological thriller stuff comes in you're like this is totally how it's gonna go like this family's dealing with such severe grief they're making all of this up in their minds and And a history devil and a history of like mental illness yeah when in reality it's this subconscious understanding what's really going on that's manifesting and presenting itself as mental illness i i did like that too and i think that yeah on some level she might have understood which is why when she was in a uh, like a lucid dreaming state she did these things because she was like suppressing it because she understood on some level what was going on and how she was being manipulated yeah i think and i didn't think that until i read that review but that makes a lot of sense i was just locked into that film like i don't know for me it wasn't confusing um but i seriously was like i felt like i had like toothpicks on my eyes that I had been drugged. It was amazing. The possession of the sun is probably my favorite instances of depicting possession. That mm-hmm. fucking reflection in the mirror at school. Oh, give me a break. So amazing. And him slamming his face in the desk. And again, it's like he gets no help. Everybody's mm-hmm. just, even the teacher's like. It's awful. Hands in the air, pretty much. I was told that he wanted to really slam his face uh so they were going to give him a soft desk but a hard desk was put in its place when he when he filmed the scene so he really broke his nose damn i also read he would just watch like a bunch of really dark twisted like docuseries and tv before he would go on set just to like get into like a a dark place i was also told the same thing about the desk and that he was in character for about three months. He went method for his role. And um, he believes he developed PTSD after filming. And he'll sometimes think he hears clicks. And he has forgotten some of the actual filming. Like he doesn't remember filming some of it. Freaky. Creepy. Tony like, Collette talked about that in an article I was reading too. And it didn't mention which role it was that she was playing but she had said that she'd experienced that too where you just like go into such a dark place it mm-hmm. takes a while to come back out of it which she actually did the opposite for this film yeah she didn't access that emotion at all during it and it wasn't until they called action that she dove in because it was so emotionally intense that she didn't want to get numb to it um and she wanted it to read authentic and she also said just to take care of myself i couldn't go method with this role she is my favorite actress i think i mean wow or at least top i was really blown away by her performance she always blows me away and the writing of her i mean i felt like the writing too was really strong there were just moments that felt so real yeah when she would just say like please 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 i don't know the desperation Mm -hmm. and whether that is how much where all of that is coming from i know it's it's equal parts her and the writing but it just felt authentic all the writing really authentic all the writing felt really on point for me dialogue yes specifically yeah Mm -hmm. yeah well and just the decisions that were made if annie really did know on an unconscious level that her children that her mother was trying to get her hooks into her children for some reason and obviously had with her daughter, which she made quite clear at the beginning. If unconsciously she knew that it was demonic, that it 
it was supernatural and that it was very dangerous. Uh, it casted her profession in a totally different light. Her entire job is recreating in miniature life. So it's an extremely meta God type perspective. When Steve interrupts her work just after Charlie dies, which I did not see coming right after she dies, she has reconstructed in miniature form the accident and he has a very hard time holding this decision. And she is in a completely clinical observer role. And she is also attributing her own perspective to something that she did not see and does not know. So how does she, how can she place it the way she does? How can she get it so accurate? When we didn't have police on the scene that we saw, we never saw her visit the scene. We don't see the head ever being retrieved. So then I'm also wondering what perspective are we seeing this film from and who's reliable? It's sort of like when she's talking about the fact that once her mother got her hooks into Charlie, she wouldn't even let Annie feed her. And you see the depiction oh in miniature so of her crazy. breastfeeding the child. But later you see pictures of Ellen feeding the child by bottle. So what, was it both? Because the picture isn't from Annie's mind. It's not, it's not her creation. Whereas her mother watching over everyone in her white nighty, basically still alive in this model miniature depiction, that is, that is completely Annie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those seem more reliable to me as the truth in the film because, again, it's almost uh, these images are from her subconscious, which I think is a more reliable source of what is really going on. Like you have these, these pictures and I'm sure maybe that was true at one point, but I think there was so much more going on. Or I think that's what's suggested. I read a thing, too, that was talking about um, Charlie's character, like, play- making the dolls, too, and how that was just another, like, level of what the mom was doing, like, in a sense of trying to control their reality. Mm-hmm. Well, there was a pretty specific sense of ritualistic practice or engagement that ran throughout the film specifically in the nuclear family they all had something that they that they would do or that would occupy their time in a very specific way and something i read suggested it all tied back to to the grandmother i don't recall any sort of neuroses or art projects or whatever that the men were doing but tony collette obviously the miniatures the daughter creating the dolls the grandmother weaving the rugs Um, They all sort of were obsessively compelled to create, um, which I thought was interesting. That the men, I didn't see that at all. Yeah, not at all. They had their vices. They had scotch and marijuana. Yes. Oh, yeah. Good point. And their relationship to women. Yeah, good point. Yes. Mm -hmm. So speaking of rituals, the clicking tongue. We had to do it once. We had to do it once. Get it out of the way. So thoughts on this? This device, because we have, uh, which is seriously the scariest thing ever. That movie to me wasn't scary necessarily, but that sound, the grudge, that noise, Mm -hmm. not the film, but the noise. And I didn't have the same reaction to. Mm -hmm. No, that didn't freak me out. It reminds reminds me of the goat 
in the witch. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it was just a device to like create anxiety, you know, because you hear that once in the night, like we're all mm-hmm. scared. Anytime the boy would hear that, mm-hmm. all the teenagers would laugh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was so prevalent in the preview. And I wonder if it hadn't been on every single cut in the preview, which was such a cool uh, storytelling device that I love how they capitalized on. I love that the misdirection. The witch did that too. The witch did that too, I feel like, with the goat in the trailer. I mean, it maybe wasn't like a device for misdirection. We just all went in there expecting Charlie yeah. to be the big bad throughout the whole film, and then she dies a quarter that was of the, the way through. I was so up. affected by that. That was... And that's because of the way they promoted it. Like they used they used the promotion of the film as part of the storytelling misdirect, mm-hmm. which I loved. But um, oh. I do think the clicking. I wonder how the clicking would have landed had it not been so um, overused in the promotion of the film. And I do see it as a mechanism, definitely. Uh, and I love the tie-in to the trailer, which for me was the best trailer I've seen in a decade at least. Not that it represented the film for me, but it, it was definitely a different layer for misdirection, a different layer of visual storytelling, um, preparing the audience, I think. But I didn't know what else, I didn't know what other purpose the tongue clicking served. Similarly, I didn't understand the purpose of Charlie's nut allergy. It's so human mm-hmm. and it grounds Charlie in in this mortal coil. Mm-hmm. So if that's the purpose, so that we don't question whether or not she's a real girl. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I wondered if there was something else to the nut allergy. Kind of like I wondered if there was something more to the tongue clicking. Hmm. That's a good question. I I had read somewhere that the the uh obsessive eating of chocolate was associated with decadence. Mm. Um, so Payman would be obsessed with decadence, you know, and riches, and would, which is why she was always eating chocolate and mm-hmm. sweetness. It's just that opulence that's that falls into the disgust. So I wonder if there's something there maybe. Um, I don't know. How about the blue light? Mm. The blue mm-hmm. light. That would like surge oh, through. Yeah, the yeah. blue light. Man, I haven't even thought of that. For me, that would be worth a rewatch alone just to go through and track. Mm-hmm. Where uh, you see it. Yeah, like when you go through and track the witch when she's unconscious and when mm-hmm. she's conscious and when these things are happening, just mm-hmm. like you go back and rewatch for that reason. I would go back and rewatch for the blue light and see it had if it had anything to do with possession mm-hmm. or approachment. Or- mm-hmm. I read that the director was quoted saying like all of the biggest clues – were intentionally put like right in front of our face so we would miss them. And mm-hmm. that's, again, that's how I felt like the naked people. It's like, who the fuck are these naked people? And when they were outside of the house, like that quick shot, Justin didn't even see them. I was like, oh my God, did you see those naked people? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I would like to go back and rewatch it to just pick up on all of the little breadcrumbs along the mm-hmm. way. Cause yeah, I'm sure with the light, there's more significance but then i also read that there's like not significance to some of it that it's just like guess what evil shit happens and we're all (laughs) looking so hard for deeper meaning in this and there's no deeper meaning it's just hellish right yeah i think sometimes there 
things like that. I don't know what the case is in this film, but they just, yeah, create a quality to the film that is weird Mm -hmm. just for the sake of creating that. uh, Perpetuating the paranormal. Yeah, this suspended reality that is like weird and you can't really articulate. Did anyone find Charlie's breasts abnormally large? Yeah. That's something that, I don't know, breasts were like sticking out to me. Her breasts stood out to me. Yeah, because she seemed so... She's only 13, she but... She so young, but, but she had these, People like, develop at 13, I suppose, true. but... Right, I mean, it was just, like, something that was, I don't know... Jarring. Charlie it was jarring. so interesting, and then they, like, dress her in, like, a dirty-ass sweatshirt and a turtleneck. Yeah, she was just, like, this, like, nubile sort of... I don't know. Breasts were a thing in the film. It just made me think of, like, nurturing and feeding... Um, it just created again this like it added to this like grotesque feeling that the film gave me she is a broadway actress i know she won a tony for matilda what the heck so amazing and yeah just like aster this is her debut whereas he you know got his start in shorts but apparently uh letterboxd has posted an upcoming A24 horror project with him midsummer. A couple goes on vacation to Sweden, I think, and crazy things happen. Dude, this guy writes dark shit. So the short film that he made in 2011, I believe, is The Strange Thing About the Johnsons, and it's available to watch on Vimeo, but I don't want to watch it after (laughs) reading the overview because it's so dark. It's about a family where the son ends up molesting the father sexually. And then the dad, like, gets so many spoilers. (laughs) The dad gets, like, hit by a bus, and then the mom kills the son. But he, like, repeatedly, like, sexually abuses the father. Whoa. That's so... That theme of the perverted child is here again in Hereditary. Yeah. And it's also, like, so intriguing. It's like a car wreck. I'm, like, kind of intrigued to see it. I'm like, how did you deal with that fucking storyline? Well, he also has a short about homelessness and erratic emptiness syndrome. A lot of these themes are said to be depicted via like a clinical tableau mm-hmm. as well. So that adds a lot to just how he crafted these characters for Hereditary and why he gave Tony Collette's character the job that she has, the purview. I love that potentially she knew that these children, that's my favorite nugget so far from this conversation. It makes it so much better. I was waiting for nuggets too because I was a little, I don't know. It just leaves you like so confused a little bit at the end. It all wraps up quick, I think. (sighs) Or I don't know, it just slaps you in the face so hard with like everything you've been expecting that then you're Mm -hmm. like, I didn't expect this. I don't know. (laughs) But I was excited to talk about it more and research it more. To gain some footing mm-hmm. on the narrative. Yeah, broad stroke themes just don't satisfy me with, with this film. You know, grief and blame and what it does to our families or expression mm-hmm. through art. Mm-hmm. Um, and that clinical perspective of Charlie's death via miniature. Like those those little nuggets, those takeaways aren't enough for me. Um, I did really appreciate the idea and look at the nuclear family and the idea that will the spirit get them or will they destroy themselves? That's even too limited because they are not in control 
as much as Steve tries to be in control and really just isn't there for Annie, let's be real. At all. At all. As much as he's trying to be in control and be like the logical, sane one, it doesn't work. And why, why does he burn up? That is fascinating to me because she was so willing to sacrifice herself. Annie was ready when her when her sleeve caught on fire the first time. She put it out and she took a step back and decided not to do this. But then knowing she has to destroy the demon, she's willing to and he ends up going up in flames. What's that about? Total loss of control. Yeah, I have no idea. She's completely, she thinks she gets close to maybe understanding what's happening. Yeah. And it's this huge, you're fucked. Yeah. You're, it's just all downhill. This this is the plan. This has been the plan from the very beginning. And you're, uh, you're a pawn. Annie is a pawn in this plan. And yeah, and maybe he goes up in flames because if she were to go up in flames, then he would catch on. Mm-hmm. She's going to die regardless. So he goes up in flames just to fuck with her more. That makes sense because... Who knows what he would have tried to do in this situation. He said mm-hmm. he was going to call the police. It was yeah. the one time the police You're came right. in. He was oh, like, I'm going to call that's the police. Right. Headless grandma upstairs. Yeah. Calling the cops. Yes, that's that's right. Because she shows him. And he just doesn't believe it. And he, yeah. He's like, what have you done? It's like, he just like blames. Mm-hmm. And I understand they have that tragedy or that near tragedy. Mm-hmm. But maybe he's just in general afraid of what she's capable of and he seems to be hiding or like holding back something or not dealing with something because he's literally like there's he's like drinking scotch at the office when they when he gets the phone call at the office Mm -hmm. he's like finishing off a scotch he always has scotch yeah he doesn't believe his wife he believes she's mentally unwell yeah and so he just which i think she claims to be to or you know like that's seems to be the train of thought she was letting I mean, her mind take. she's also worried about that too. Yeah, or that her mom is a Satan worshiper. I think <laughs> she was like worried about both. Yeah. Just because of the way she reacts to like the books at the beginning and stuff. You know, she's scared mm-hmm. of her mom's stuff. She locks her mom's room like she's mm-hmm. scared of her mother. Yeah, she does have paranoia around that. But then she tries to rationalize it, especially in the grief um, circle moment when she just talks about her family. But she still is like locked the door. Yeah. It's subconscious and like, okay and like who fucking robbed the grave for the grandma the cult members it's the cult members i'm sure yeah i would believe that just because they need her body for the ritual all of this comes underway this all happens based on the connection that annie makes with joan and dowd's character she's the catalyst to move this forward mm-hmm. uh other things are happening that are outside of this cult's control like when the son accidentally beheads the daughter and the spirit jumps from her to him. Isn't that what happens? She has the spirit inside of her is what is thought to be because she's the only one who had contact with her grandmother. She has it. She was initially the host. Right. And so she's been possessed, but then her head's gone. She can't carry forward. She can't host anymore. So then what happens when Tony Collette like suddenly is her when they light the candle at the house, remember? Because mm-hmm. she, like, becomes the daughter again. Mm-hmm. And so then it goes into the sun, like, after that? Is that when it, like, hops? Well, no, well, I don't know. I think what Rochelle is saying is that it's during the car accident. But then after the car accident, once Charlie's mm-hmm. dead, the demon is in Tony Collette. Or is it Charlie? 
not the demon. Right. Is because she's saying, Charlie. doesn't she say mom? She's like, mommy, mommy. She's scared, which is uh, absolutely not, out of character not yeah. for Charlie. Oh, point. That's a good yeah. point. Well, Anna, that's, that's what I was dabbling with, with the light, the blue light. I want to go back through and I want to mm-hmm. track it because mm-hmm. of the way it surges through and as it's in the school that we see the blue light quite a few times and that's when we actually see the manifestation right. of mm-hmm. the of the host coming forward in peter's face mm-hmm. in the reflection oh. and i also want to then go back and kind of look over what i thought of as grief that catatonic state that he experiences just after the accident. Good point. And his, it seems like he's losing time and mm-hmm. and whatnot. And so that is something I would like to revisit because I really chalked it up. In. Yeah, I chalked mm-hmm. it up to Me grief too, like, dude, and shock. Nice. And I bought it. I was like, wow, yes, this is a, a response to unfathomable grief. I can't ever imagine. Right. Um, and but, that, yeah, that, I think that that makes sense mm-hmm. totally. it also makes sense why he is so engaged in the quote unquote real world and charlie is not mm-hmm. she makes right. her toys from found objects mm-hmm. she cuts is, heads off yeah, birds and turns mm-hmm. them into toys mm-hmm. there's a disconnect there she doesn't care about yeah that the demon wants her to be a boy right mm-hmm. that's what tony collette said too like mm-hmm. i was such a tomboy Interesting. So it was like the demon needed a male host, mm-hmm. which but is was why... in Tony Collette, and then it was in Charlie, oh, which is weird. I don't though. remember it being in. Annie's I don't character. know. I'm just. I'm oh, just spe- like speculating, snowballing now. Oh, but okay. she. Do you remember when Tony Collette to Charlie is like, "Hey, I used to be a tomboy mm-hmm. too, and never fit in with the girls." Mm-hmm. So I think that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, and when and her then brother it her firstborn, that's weird. Well, because she kept her away. From she her kept her grandmother away oh, from Peter. Right, that's right. Um, well, and that's interesting because you know Annie's brother commits suicide, and they say he's schizophrenic mm-hmm. because he was pl- claiming his mother was putting people inside of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which makes sense that the woman is the carrier yeah. for Payman. Like Peter could not be born with Pan. It's only a woman who can. Um, bring a demon into the world so charlie was the mother essentially and it fucked up her body i agree it it makes sense that it would mess up her development Mm -hmm. and that's not yeah she was so awkward Mm -hmm. and it's not enough to describe her uh, lack of affectation oh it was all just so uncanny yeah what a fun like mystery movie to figure out it's like a puzzle Mm -hmm. so if annie knew that her children were at risk of being possessed based on what she watched in her own home growing up, the capacity that her mother possessed and how bizarre her life had been and her relationship had been with her mother. Then as it gets closer and closer to this possession taking her son, this demon taking her son, full force and everyone dying essentially, what is it that really happens to Annie. You know, she's up in corners creeping around. She's swimming through air. If she's not possessed, what is the response? Why does she levitate and then saw her head off? What's causing that? I don't know. The women clearly played a role in bringing the demon about. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if that was a part of it. I don't think a lot of the things that occur at the end of the movie necessarily have like a purpose other than like it's all going to hell. Really, like all the demons are out now. 
kids. Well, and if her mother was the queen, you know, the leader of this cult, which she seemed to be the supreme one, I would think that everyone, especially the women, had their role into bringing this, birthing this demon. And I don't know if that explains enough Annie suddenly becoming, yeah, a levitating specter. It does tie back in the note that Annie finds from Ellen in the book when she says, or when the the note that says, um, I hope that you understand that the sacrifice is, is worth it or necessary. She's creating a bit of foreshadowing there mm-hmm. that really doesn't did not land for me as an audience member. I had no idea what it mm-hmm. was referring to. I didn't even mm-hmm. recognize it. I didn't even recognize it as foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. But that could potentially be it, that there was a role to play and it was going to be a mass sacrifice. Dark magic. Mm-hmm. Dark magic. I mean, and that scared her. That's when she like slammed the book and like mm-hmm. left the room too. She didn't go back to look at it again until the mm-hmm. she was looking for the doormats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do feel like it was a part of all the mad mojo that had been in the works since before Annie was born. Yeah. And was coming to be. Um and Annie knew it. And Annie was a sacrifice. They needed the, the head of all three women, three generations of women, sacrificed. So that the demon could possess a male heir. Mm-hmm. A healthy male. Yeah, I really am connecting more to with to what you said, Payon jumping to Peter during the accident. Yeah, no, I because think you're his, so right on that. His look right there after that moment happened is the same look at the very end, which I loved, of just this like bewilderment. He just looked completely bewildered. And that does make me wonder if when he is slamming his head against the desk, if it's him warring mm-hmm. internally. Uh-huh. And I mean, we saw only a short amount of time of Charlie's life. Mm-hmm. So we don't know what that is if she was possessed in the same way that Peter was possessed or if it was just a dulling sense whereas he seems hyper aware so hyper aware and like you said so connected to the real world Mm -hmm. very connected which would make the whole thing harder absolutely what are we taking away from hereditary what are we carrying forward in conversation with future horror films and people who are potentially interested in seeing this film specifically. For me, I would say something I'm going to continue to carry forward and take away is that conversation about analytical, divergent, creative, evocative, non-linear storytelling, especially in the horror genre, is what's expanding body genre right now and can help segue our pre-programmed minds into realms of understanding and excitement and titillation. Uh, I may not have found this film to be initially um, palatable, but the more we talk about it, the more we discuss, the more excited I am about the theory behind the film and for what it's going to usher in in the future. So conversation, being willing to dialogue about film in a healthy excited but also um, thoughtful way it really can open up an experience there was uh something that i read and i wish i could remember who said it 
but it was that horror has become a Trojan horse for indie drama. Mm. And I love that. That's, That's how Ari Aster describes the film. When he's asked, he said he never had described it as a horror film. He describes mm-hmm. it as a family drama. And I, I love that idea. And I think we do see that in The Babadook. It follows The Witch. The Witch. Um, and so I'm excited to see this continuing to get steam, um, mm-hmm. especially since Tony Collette and Gabriel Byrne were the executive producers. They were like passionate about this project. Um, so I'm excited to see this get honed and chiseled. For me, this film helped me understand what it is about horror that I am drawn to or that I like. And I think it is a very just sensory experience initially. It's it's just engaging my body in a way that no other genre really does, mm-hmm. that I really like. And there's something about paranormal cult decadence that I I love, like makes me feel high and fearful at the same time. And it's so, it's such a weird dichotomy and I love it. Mm-hmm. So I'm thankful for hereditary for helping me like articulate that better yeah it was just a beautiful journey I feel like through the film I loved again how it was crafted it was just like a beautiful journey through a movie and then also yeah because of the way he wrote it having kind of a puzzle to put together at the end that I'll keep thinking about too it's something that will stick with me at least for quite a while I think I want to see it once more in the theater and then never see it ever again. Wow. Interesting. Because it's fucked up. I'm serious. Like, I saw it with Neil and uh, another friend. And we, like, were sitting there just, like, comatose. And we looked at each other and we're we're like, we feel weird. We feel wrong. (laughs) So, yeah, I want to watch it once more on the big screen. And then I don't need to see it again. Final verdict. Would you say that this film is scary? Yes. It was very scary for me um, in that it distanced me from myself. That was what was most scary. I didn't have any jump scares. It was the feeling that I was thrust into. Yeah. I would say it's scary. I'm a really hard sell for like possession movies. (laughs) So I would say it was scary. It was a fun experience. Like, it was an experience. It's nothing that'll scare me when the lights are off after the fact. But it was a fun experience and scary in the theater. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that what it was saying is horrifying enough. Devil worship. Bye. Uh... This has been a Talking to Crows production. 